We're getting a, hold on, we're getting a flyover. I forgot about that. Crap. You guys look outside. The planes, the planes. <laughs> hurry, hurry, hurry. They just flew over. Look outside. This is where the party ends. I can't stand here listening to you and your racist friend. I know politics for you, but I feel like a hypocrite talking to you and your racist friend. Welcome to My Racist Friend, the podcast about the messy parts of relationships that help us grow together. I'm Amy McKees, and I'm here today with Don Griffin and special guest, Dr. LaShawn Williams. Mm. It's exciting. We just had the Blue Angels fly over. A what flyover? The Blue Angels, the airplanes. It was the F-35 demo team. Oh, the, the people flying over for the, for the, uh, the first response, the, um, yes, the health workers. Yes, the healthcare workers, oh, the flyover. We just had a flyover. Oh, that's awesome. I when saw them, but I forgot to tell the kids they were coming. That was exciting. Yeah. But we've had earthquakes and stuff the last month or two. So anytime you hear some like loud noise, you're like, is it an earthquake? Is it an aftershock? Is it they're testing the bomb area over in Tooele, like an hour away? Because we so the bombs for Hiroshima and Nagasaki, our test ground is here. So whenever you hear a big boom, it's either a sonic booms from the bomb testing facility, an earthquake, an aftershock, or today the F thirty five flyovers. Nice, I love it. So exciting. not the bomb thing. That, that kind of could be kind of scary, but they told a few people like on Facebook hey, we're going to be testing during this week, so you might get aftershocks. I don't check their Facebook. I don't oh know God. what they're going to do. And so then I'm like, why That's does it sound like a bookshelf keeps falling down outside in the sky? Like, oh, it's aftershock. <laughs> but we had had, we had had like an aftershock earthquake, like an actual one like that morning. And so we we're trying to figure out if it was more aftershocks. But no, it was just bomb testing. So welcome to Utah. So how are y'all? How's the quarantining out there in, in, in V-Town? I mean, we're really fortunate. Kevin's still working. I'm still working. And Carter's home, which I was really afraid that it was going to shake out so that, that she wouldn't be home. But it, it didn't. We're all here. I like that. And we're all getting along. Like, it's, it's as far as quarantine goes, it's good. It's like, what's the measuring point? You know what I mean? Like, oh, it's been good quarantine or it's been not good quarantine. Like, like we're not dead. Yeah, which is also always a benefit. Mm-hmm. We're hospitalized. True, true, true. Yeah, tomorrow was supposed to be the last day of our kids' school dismissal, but the governor did a soft closure through the rest of the month because we've got the folks up at the state capitol protesting to open the state back up and then, you know, going about their merry little way. So I told the kids, I said, you know what, I don't think we're going to go back to school this fall. I think we're going to homeschool until all of this, like one year, right? One year yeah. of being out here and then we'll look at school again. So I don't know. We'll see. I was noticing a lot of debate, I guess, but it was debate over whether or not you could call a, a white woman a, a Karen. But then I forget which name it is. So sometimes I think it's like Becky. There, that's a Becky. Yeah, there is a Becky. I, I'm not clear on the, <laughs> I'm not clear on the difference between a, a Karen and a Becky, but I do find it amusing, like the whole. Maybe a, is a Becky younger? No. A, a basic a, Becky. A basic Becky is kind of like the nondescript, mediocre, doesn't try too hard, just kind of exists, but like does your basic appropriation of like. African African-American vernacular English. Um, the digital blackface on TikTok is a, a, like a, a little bit of an upgrade for some of the, the Becky type behavior. The Karen is along the realms of like white people that call the police on black people existing. Like that's a Karen. That's, that's a the Karen. I want to speak to the manager. 
white Karen lady wants behavior. To speak to the manager. Mm. Karen wants to speak to the manager. Yes, with like it's 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 been eerie. It's been eerie. There was a social media movement on Instagram that a friend of mine sent to me, and it was a bunch of white women. And they all had the same like the same like a line bob blonde haircut, and then like they had it spray painted into their hair. Don't call me a Karen. They you... all had this. Yes, they had this side profile with the Karen spray paint and the blonde A-line bob. And it was like, fight the power, rainbow glitter, like black power fist for white people. It was super, it was amazing to observe. Like we are living in unprecedented times. And then on Twitter, there was someone that was saying, don't use the word Karen because it's a racial and ethnic slur against white women. It's, it's worse than the N word because it's about race and gender. So I just kept reading and I was like, oh my God. This is, oh yeah, it was, it was, it was. And I was like, you know what? Karen is really awful. And the N word is like bad a little, like it's also bad. So like, don't use both of them. But like for real, like don't use Karen because that is a racial and ethnic slur against white women. And we all know that's where the buck stops, right? And the thing is like, I, I, I talked about it a little bit on Facebook and I said, you know, what people are missing and what's missing in this conversation is like the comedic line, the comedic understanding of punching up versus punching down. Yeah. Like, and I, I've, I've seen it used when we're describing comedy, right? Like how come it's okay for, you know, George Carlin or how come it's okay for black people to make fun of white people in comedy or how come it's okay for women to make like all of these different intersectional identities, right? When they start doing their comedic sketches, there's a lot more license for kind of like the raw cost, like the Andrew Dice Clay type comedians. Um, then you have like your George Carlins who are like social commentators. And then you have folks like, you know, Dave Chappelle, Kevin Hart. You have our female comedians like Wanda Sykes, Sarah Silverman, all of these folks who use comedy to push, you know, push the, the envelope and to approach the line and sometimes cross it but have the protection of, it was part of my comedy sketch to have this, you know, greater impact. Punching up and punching down. When you're punching up, you're doing so from a position of oppression and you're punching up against a person, a system or a label where you actually don't have any power but to make fun of them and kind of like hurt their feelings, but it's not gonna actually damage their position. It's not mm -hmm. gonna damage the structure, that's the punching up. The punching down is when you start from a position of privilege and you start punching down on groups. That's why you can't be as racist anymore as a comedian without there being like consequences for it. So I kind of feel like the same thing is happening in these discussions about don't call me Karen. White women have every reason to not want white men to call them Karen because that's where the actual power structure is. For white women not wanting people of color to call them Karen, it's like, we. As a, as a marginalized group, I don't have any power over you anyway. All I can do is say a name that hurts your feelings. Mm -hmm. But I can't keep you from getting a job. I can't go and say, don't hire Karens. People's names are Karen. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have any power to do anything but hurt your feelings by calling you a Karen. If you, and this is tough, if you buy into what Karen means, right? The reverse of that is, well, then how come black people get so upset about the N-word? If you don't buy into what it means, then why does it matter? It matters because you have a whole entire system and country built on treating people and looking at them as N-words. Menstrual shows, like, we don't have Karen shows. <laughs> We're not appropriating Karen culture and commodifying it and making it, inter making it an international commodity. That's not those around shows? That doesn't go anywhere. I don't watch them. But I'm pretty sure, you know we're getting Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, right? Are you that I would watch? <laughs> wow. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Watch out, big love. Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. That's it's coming. I think it's coming this fall on Bravo. I think it's this fall on Bravo. Mm, that sounds fun. I'm going to look for you as somebody's friend in that. Nope. Mm -mm. <laughs> I keep. There's going to be somebody. You're going to be a friend to somebody. No, 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 no. I certainly, I most certainly will not. The expert that they call when someone's having a meltdown. They're like, <laughs> is it time to call Dr. LaShawn? Yes, it oh, is. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks. No, thanks. So Karen is like, Karen's actually Becky's mom. You know, I think that that might be an appropriate comparison. An I appropriate, think that like, is I was to do a genogram. I think if it, like Becky is the child, Karen is mom. I, 
I, I will co-sign that. Let's let's go with it. Okay, I like it. I'm glad. I, I honestly did not know um, uh, uh, what the the background of that, but I yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Your Thank quarantine you. is not complete if you don't have the background That's on the latest versions of white fragility that are making the rounds uh -huh. in social media. I don't know. Is it, is it, is white fragility more fragile right now because we're all so freaked out in general, like, cause we're just carrying this level of anxiety constantly. People are less capable of seeing beyond themselves right now. If there was um, an existence of like folks prone to white fragility, being able to see beyond themselves in general, in order for us to be less able to see beyond ourselves due to the quarantine. Is it exacerbating it? Eh, I mean, maybe. I think, I think the biggest thing about it, from what I've seen, has been, uh, and we can transition into this a little bit later, but it's just the hypocrisy around who has access and who has permission to protest or to say, don't treat me this way or don't call me this way, and it be taken seriously at the mainstream level as quickly as it does when white people stand up and say, this is wrong, don't treat me the way that I've been okay, you treating black people and brown people and other types of people that are marginalized before I was treated that way. You know, white folks, they speak out real quickly when things are not going right for them. And I think we kind of have to live with it for a long time. Or if we're protesting it, we get just because of the numbers, we get pushed down it's not even on their radar that it could be hurtful to us. And it's that we, we, we take it wrong. Mm -hmm. The Karens of the world are very quick to say, stop this. This is, this is equal to what I've been going through that all your oppression that you've been, you know, for years and years and years, this is, this is equal to. <sighs> yeah. Well, it's the fact that they gain the ability to recognize what oppression looks like when it happens to them. When it happens outside of them, it's, oh, well, they didn't, they didn't mean it that way. Are you sure that's what they said? Are you being too sensitive? Like, there's all of the questions and all of the qualifying and all of the, just the, the things that make you feel like your lived experience isn't real when you feel like you have to justify it and explain it. But immediately when someone else experiences this oppression, the, the, the key piece is this. When they experience oppression and it's real to them, does it change their perspective about what you've experienced? If it does, then okay, they actually got it. And they're like, you know what? And this has been happening to you and I didn't realize it. I want to fix this so it doesn't happen to you either because I didn't like it happening to me. What ends up happening, unfortunately, is I'm okay if it happens to you, but I'm going to rally the troops, the structure, the system, the history, and everything else in my benefit because I don't want it happening to me. But that's where my activism stops, is at the end of my discomfort. Your discomfort is fine with me. Mine discom my discomfort is not. And so I think, I mean, I feel like I already know the answer, but I think that that's what, you have, that's what we have to pay attention to is, okay, cool. I'm not going to deny anyone else's experience of oppression. I and mean, if you experience oppression, it is awful, it's disgusting, it drains you, it damages you, and it is traumatic. And you deserve the support, the healing, the, the, the safe place to explore, and you deserve to be made whole. Now, once you are made whole and you're okay, when I speak up and say, hey, this is happening to me, are you going to give the same amount of respect, consideration, support, leverage, et cetera, to me and on my behalf and my issues that I did for you? Because if so, then you really do believe in oppression. If not, you believe in privilege, but you just won't name it. No, and a lot of times when, when you're complaining about something that happened to, that's been happening to you, they will revert back to the time that it happened to them and that's why it's okay. Not, oh, it should not be happening to you. It's, yeah, but racism exists on both sides. Because I remember I was at this party and I felt I was the only person there of, that was white and I, I felt some kind of way. So don't tell me it's, you know, you know, I've experienced that. You'll get that kind of stuff all the time. Yeah, and I love to talk to them about situations. My favorite comeback is, could you leave the party? Did you have to wake up every single day and go to the party? Were you mm. forced to go to the party? Could you go somewhere else? Did the party have a beginning, a middle, and an end? Could you choose when to be in it and to be out of it? 
then you experience the situational oppression. Imagine if your whole life was structured that way. You couldn't leave, you couldn't exit, and then people didn't believe you that you had to go to this party all the time. That's a structure. That's a systemic oppression. That's what I'm going through. So you didn't like it for an hour. I don't like it for the generations of my family. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What, one thing that I, this is a preformed thought like we do on here. So I'm not probably super articulate about it. But the thing that I'm thinking about right now is the dynamic of white women experiencing sexism and then believing that they understand oppression enough to speak for anyone else. Uh, particularly like LaShawn, what you were saying earlier about saying, oh, but, you know, maybe you're too sensitive or I know they didn't mean that. And definitely the I know they didn't mean that is like sort of white woman 101. And I'm thinking about strategies of uh, disconnection slash strategies of survival. And that in, in some ways that's, it, it's like, a really common strategy of disconnection, but it becomes weaponized when it's going to people of color and saying, well, you're not really experiencing this because uh, I'm sure they didn't really mean it. And I'm not sure what to do with that, except that I think it's interesting and that it might help, help us figure out how to not be Karens if we could see that. If we could see that that is something that we do in order to stay safe, like that, mm -hmm. that women throughout history have learned how to make everybody get along. Um, I think what um, you're also mentioning is like the root of like the central relational paradox, which means in that moment, I really want to be close to my sister, right? She's experiencing something, but I'm scared because if what she's experiencing somehow implicates me as being complicit, Oh my gosh, yeah. I'm, that's my strategy of disconnection, but I'm also using, a, I'm trying to survive the sexist system that oppresses me as a white woman, but the racist system that I'm complicit in as a white woman that's damaging and harming my black indigenous person of color sister. And mm -hmm. so if we can get underneath too, the, at the core of it is that central relational paradox. And I really do want to be connected with you woman to woman, woman to woman, to woman. I don't know how to disconnect from the racism and I actually can't disconnect from the racist system because I am part of it, but I yeah. need to, I need to acknowledge that I'm complicit in your harm and I don't want to be because I'm also being harmed. And so it doesn't necessarily make sense that I can be being harmed, but also even in my harm, still harming you. That's the part we've got to bring up to the surface and say, okay, these things are true at the same time. But what's the, the term for that one? When it's the, the cards. My cards are downstairs. I would, I would grab it right now, but it's, um, we have a like, card for it. That's it. You know, a lot could happen if the sisterhood became one. Yep. What's stopping so that? What white is- White supremacy and the patriarchy? Well, that and it's the, the lack of consciousness raising for white women in white women's spaces, because there's a work that has to be done there that once that work is done, you guys realize that could change the world, right? I mean, that, that could change everything. I was just reading in Women's Growth and Diversity, I think. Oh, this is the best thing ever. RCT will save the world. This is from 1992. <laughs> yeah. 1992, Beverly Daniel Tatum, who was the author of Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race. That book is hers. She writes this with... Her homegirl, I think Robin and Dr. Tatum are talking. So, so Tatum is talking about the immersion stage, which is from Cross's theory of nigrescence, which is racial identity development theory, right? So she's talking about it and she says, I'd like to add that I didn't describe all the stages for whites, but one of the stages is when someone has started to recognize her own racism and is trying to figure out what to do about it. Often at this stage, she will look for the help of a person of color to educate her. Okay, I see that there is a problem. I want to do something about it. You, person of color, tell me what to do. 1992. Anyway, if the person of color at that point is in the encounter stage, that person is not interested in playing that role. And in fact, as Alice was saying, there's no need for a person of color to do that. There are other ways to be educated. Today we would say, go Google that, right? 
So then, but there is a stage that Janet Helms, another racial identity development theorist, calls the immersion stage, like cross the stage of immersion in which white people seek to redefine whiteness. And that's what I think has to happen is we have to redefine whiteness. Mm -hmm. One of the things that happens as somebody becomes aware of the racism in this society and the way in which they have been affected by it is that they become alienated from the present definition of whiteness. They mm -hmm. see whiteness as a dominating, oppressive category, and they don't want to be a part of that. So the question becomes, how can I be white and not be part of that category? Well, Sometimes the person will try to not be white, to try to hang out at the Black Student Union, or to take on a different identity and say, I'm not like them, I'm distancing myself. But ultimately, that kind of separation doesn't work because it's not real. And the person is then forced to acknowledge, I am in fact white. I am in fact a white woman in this case. So the question is, how can I redefine whiteness in a way that makes me feel good? There are ways to do it there's more than one way of being white. You can define yourself as a white ally, for example. You can define yourself as an agent for change or an anti-racist activist. 1992, I could go on. Yeah. I just sat here and this was like an oxygen tank when I was writing this chapter, because it was so good. Yeah. And I, I think yeah. about that, that question, Don, about how come the women aren't getting together is because, allow me. One, one more paragraph to no, read. Please. One of the things that disturbs me about our educational system, beyond what I said about the experiences of African-American students, is that if I were to ask each of you to name a nationally known racist, you could all do it. You could think of David Duke or Jesse Helms or George Wallace. Somebody would come to mind. Oh. If I were to ask you to name a nationally known white anti-racist, my experience is that many groups struggle a long time before they can think of one person. So then she names a few people. <laughs> Mm -hmm. However, the point is that if you can't think of any anti-racist, then it's hard to imagine yourself being one. So that one of the things that happens in the immersion stage for whites is a real desire to find examples of other people who think the same way. So if we want the sisterhood to actually demonstrate what connection can look like, white women have to be able to find other white people that they can pattern themselves after as anti-racist. They can't go and say, oh, yes, I love Michelle Obama. She is my spirit animal. Like, there are so many things that are wrong and problematic about identifying with Black women as the source of your ability to be true, authentic, and anti-racist. You should be able to find another white person that says, this is my example because I have more in common with this white person and their lived experiences, they can walk me through the process than expecting black people or black women, people of color, any marginalized community to do the emotional labor of letting me identify with them as my freedom from whiteness. Like you can't escape whiteness. So, there's no get out of white free card. I, you know, so. no, there's not, but you all do try those things. <laughs> it's just not like a real card. It, and if it does exist, y'all change it up and it's something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I think we have a lot of, in Bloomington, a community who likes to embrace being progressive, we actually have a lot of people who think that they are enlightened. They, they probably read that paragraph and changed their life. You know, we've got a lot of people that need to know what is the next step. They've been stuck. Yeah. You, you understand what I'm saying? They think that they, they are woke or they think that they are the kind of white people who want to distance themselves from being white, like you said, but then they don't know how to, they, they need more instruction on where to go from there. We have a lot of folks who are, who are well-meaning, but they go after African-Americans because they don't think the African-Americans are, are progressive enough or doing too much. Or they yeah. might, or that African American has too much money, or that's have, unfortunate. That's weird to have white people tell you that you're an Uncle Tom. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have also seen examples of white people engaging in really difficult conversations. I can think of one off the top of my head where he was disagreeing with a woman of color, and it went back and forth and back and forth a lot. 
And at one point he wrote, if you're reading this and you're like, wow, he's making good points, then you need to go back and reread it because I'm learning a lot as I have this conversation and I'm changing as I listen to her. Basically, he shifted the conversation so that to, to participate in it, you had to really hear what she was saying. I feel weird trying to explain it on thing, but- it, But that's also was, weird that he felt like he needed to, like he was the judge and jury of whether or not she was right or not. That was, that's kind of- No, that's why I shouldn't be explaining it because it, it truly, he didn't, okay. it didn't, it didn't sound like that. It was, it was someone earnestly trying to Understand. like center his own experience and step back. And there were people in the thread that were trying to pull him back in too. And so it, so he was trying to name it while it was happening. Yeah. Like he was realizing that it was happening and also naming it for folks who weren't realizing that it was happening. Yes. As soon as he got there, he brought people with him. That's what I, I guess what I'm saying. So if that makes sense. I see. Well, and I guess I, I think one thing that I'll add or that I'll ask is how do you get the people who can name the work while it's happening to talk to the white people that are saying black people aren't radical enough. Like, where's that conversation? How, how do you get white people to say, hey, I understand that you may want, or you may feel more validated, or you may feel more invigorated if black people were fighting against this system to a level that made you feel comfortable, but understand it's our people, it's our whiteness that created the system, and actually we should be fighting harder than they are because there's no amount of fighting that black people can do to undo this system. Like, so if they don't even want to fight it at all, it's actually okay. We have to fight it. We have to dismantle it because it is our membership and whiteness that created the category or created the system. Mm -hmm. I, I think it, we need to like do the things that create vulnerability. And I found the card. I think it was disruptive empathy. Disruptive empathy captures the paradox of relationship and the paradox of power by both anchoring and overturning. Disruptive empathy gives us the courage to name reality as we see it and tell our multiple and conflictual truths. That is it. Yeah, multiple and conflictual truths. Yes. And what are the conflicting truths before you right now? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I actually, uh, I see that you're both holding up your set of cards and you know, I feel like I deserve a set of cards eventually. I mean, I think I've put in the work. And, uh, you know, you guys, I know you got your little club and everything, but, you know, I should know what I'm talking about, you know, like, when, when I go into these things. Yeah, you could pull up a card. You could be like, central relational paradox, of course. That would be nice. See what I'm saying? Yep. So I expect some cards in my mailbox. Okay, we'll get you some. <laughs> okay. When we mention the disruptive empathy, I want to also mention that's a Marine Walker that is in her Who Do You Think You Are book that's available now. She's virtually coming to Bloomington on May 10th, and she'll be doing the UU virtual service at, there at 1015 Sunday morning. So Mother's Day, that'll be a fun treat. I'm super excited. It's cool. When you're talking, LaShawn, about, you know, like, maybe we could, you know, redefine what it is to be white, to find some way to, I, I just, I'm trying to find a way to talk about the yucky feelings and being brave enough and authentic enough and supported enough because it's not solo stuff. Like, you have to do this in connection. One of the cards is supported vulnerability. So, like, having that to get maybe to push through the, the tears of a white woman, to like get through that part into another part that's more effective. Well, what you're naming is, is one of the steps of creative work towards mutual empathy. And like the first one is constructive conflict. And I always use that one first because in order for us to have a conversation, we agree that we're building something out of what's about to be a difficult conflict type of you know discussion. Mm -hmm. And then I think second is respecting difference, Third is supportive vulnerability. And all that that means is I am willing to show the parts of me that can be hurt with the understanding and the trust that you are not going to take advantage of it. So what that really pushes us to do is to understand that before tears are weaponized, 
tears actually serve a purpose. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like cry on command, weaponize these tears, like missiles. Like we, no one actually does that. There literally is a feeling process happening that makes the tears happen. Now, if I'm saying, I know that if I start crying, they'll stop talking to me, then that's, you know, using it for manipulation. But the tears are likely there because there's a real feeling. And I yeah. don't know if we actually let ourselves sit in what the real feeling is, which I think is grief. I think there's a grieving process that starts happening and to distract from the actual grieving process that might necessitate the tears then becomes the caretaking, which is, oh, it's okay. Don't feel bad. You're crying. We don't have to talk about it. Yeah. You know? And so there could be some maliciousness there. There might not be, but like the thing about it is when someone starts crying, okay, I will let you cry. What's coming up for you? That's the therapy question, right? What's coming up for you? I just feel like you're attacking me. Okay. Like, I'll wait until you're done crying and then we can keep talking. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. there's, there's, there's a way to give room for the tears so that they are not only weapons of war, but if we know that crying tears will mean caretaking, which means I don't have to be responsible for what I've done, said, allowed, have been complicit in, then yeah, I'm going to cry all day. Mm -hmm. So maybe the, the reason that the, tear, the tears of a white woman are so toxic is because they stop everything. Like everything stops right there. Mm -hmm. but, if, but if you sit through it and own it and then look at like what, what, what is this representing? Like what are the, what's the skin I'm trying to shed or that I'm trying to lose through these tears? And it's about who's allowed to feel pain. Mm -hmm. White women are not allowed to feel pain. They can't cry. They can't be in pain. We must stop that. How many black people have cried? How many Asian people have cried? How many immigrants? How many indigenous people have cried and been allowed and expected and forced to cry because of what's happening to them? And it's okay. They can cry. They can be in pain. They can handle it. They'll be fine. But whiteness or white people, white women, they're not allowed to feel pain. They're not allowed to get that same stamina building experience that a lot of people of color have had to get. Um, that's why in D'Angelo's book talking about white fragility she says you know we lack racial stamina mm -hmm. and so the crying is to avoid building the racial stamina that's built into so many populations of color like we've had to have a stamina for oppression and so we're waiting for our white counterparts to build their own racial stamina or their own oppression stamina I guess so that we can kind of be in this together because it's battle wounds all right, now you've got some too. And it's not good. You know, Don, earlier you mentioned that somebody will say, well, I've been through that too. It's not so bad. Like, like I don't want that to be the thing that mm -hmm. makes us equal is, yeah, come on in and jump in this, in this destructive, damaging, violent oppression. It's all right. Come on, get your battle wounds, get your battle scars. Like, I actually don't want that for anyone. However, like Tatum says in the book, there are other ways to be educated Maybe there are other ways to gain stamina without having to be hurt in the process, but I don't know. I, I think just being able to honestly look at like the legacy that we carry, I think that that carries pain in and of itself, but I'm... Well, it's like working out, right? Like my friend is doing couch to 5k. I was supposed to be doing it too, but it started last Monday and here we are a week later. So I'm not doing it, but think about like, couch to anti-racist oh I love couch to anti-racist you know what I mean <laughs> you are funny I'm serious I'm trying to figure out like because one you have to choose to do couch to 5k I gotta choose I can write down the whole program five minute walk two minute jog five minute walk but if I actually don't get out and do the five minute walk two minute jog five minute walk I'm still on the couch so if we have like couch to anti-racism what does that look like uh, is there like a little schedule where we choose to like engage and then we get ourselves up to having the stamina to run a racial marathon? Like, you know, I could run a 5K. I think I have to jog like 20 something minutes by the end of it all. I have no, tried to 5K so many years. You were teasing, <laughs> you were teasing, but I think it's perfect. I just said there's like no true workbook. Oh, there is, though. Uh, there's like a white supremacy workbook that you can get now, but who made it? Jada, who was on the show, recommended it. Me and White Supremacy. Does they have a blue cover? One is blue and one is yellow. I think I've seen the blue one. Is it written by a, a female author? Layla 
Yeah, I remember, I haven't read that one yet. At times, I get a little anti-racist book promoting out because I'll add it to my list. <laughs> it's on the it's on the Black Lives Matter list for Bloomington. Well, you know the thing about it is like, again, if I can get a talk from 1992, yeah, that is still applicable to us in 2020. The stuff is out there. The Color of Fear. Did you ever see it? It was like a, a men's group around racism. The Color of Fear. No. Don't know about it. The, okay, so if you look up The Color of Fear, it's probably on YouTube by now. Lee Mun has been doing like anti-racism work for, you know, decades. Last Chance for Eden was like a follow-up from The Color of Fear. It's kind of like we've hit this racial anti-racism plateau because this one is 2002. This is 1992. Um, you look at books like Possessive Investment in Whiteness. You look at books like When Affirmative Action Was White. There are so many books out there that talk about whiteness and its effects. There's Derek Bell, Faces at the Bottom of the Well. Like, there's so much out there. What you have to do is find the person that speaks to you and then do what you learn from them. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I, maybe me and White Supremacy, maybe it has a, a list of things to do. For a long time, it was free, and it was highly, rec like, I, I heard about it all over the place, and then I think, like, the week before, I finally got around to going over and thinking, okay, I'm going to download this free book and work through it, and then she's like, you know what, I, I'm going to publish this, and so at that point, it was no longer available as a PDF that you could just pull down and read. I've heard good things about it, and am interested in learning more, but, but I can't imagine that one thing would do it all rarely does it anyway because i'm old now when someone says 1994 to me it seems like it was yesterday i like that's not a long time ago but that is a <laughs> long damn time years ago. ago yeah we yeah. are not we're further behind we're we're behind this now you you understand what i'm saying like our mm -hmm. racial relationships are, are worse off than they were in 1994. Mm -hmm. People are saying the same thing in 92 they're saying today. And so that book is going to make my eye twitch because Robin D'Angelo wrote the foreword to it. So I just will have to like work on myself before <laughs> I can go get the book. <laughs> and there's so much in like the RCT books. There's so many conversations around race and gender and sexism. And like, there's just so much in here that if you read it, it's like, this was written yesterday. No, it was written 25 years ago. Well, okay. And for those of you who are interested in like poking around some of these and you don't want to like buy a textbook, which some of these older RCT books, like you wind up having to pay textbook prices to get one of them. But on the International Center for Growth and Connections website, they have all the works in progress available there. You just have to poke around some. And my guess, I, I know that like some of the older ones about race that uh, Maureen Walker wrote are in there. Maureen Walker, Beverly Daniel Tatum, Peggy McIntosh, Cleavon Turner, um, a lot of race thinkers. There was someone else's name that I was like, this person did RCT too? And I was just shocked. <laughs> yeah, and so, and you can get, and those are free. What else is going on? Oh, uh, just, we got this little pandemic thing. Got the pandemic. Uh, Indiana is, in theory, opening up, but I don't know if that's actually been announced yet well i think some of these places that are opening up they have rural areas but they have urban centers who have people of color in it that are being affected the most and it's almost yeah. like you know when i'm overthinking i'm like okay they're doing this purposely to get rid of people of color in georgia I mean, because, it, you know, it, like, in places like that, if you think about Georgia, the biggest urban center is Atlanta, which is 80-something percent African-American. So by opening up the, the state, who is that affecting? Is that when they talk about there, there may have to be some sacrifices to keep business open, who are they, try, who are they talking about sacrificing? And, and in each and every case, whether it's Illinois, Ohio, Indiana, it's showing that they don't give a shit about people of color that would that we are expendable well and that's showing in all kinds of ways too i mean the um the experiences of african-american people presenting at hospitals with covid19 and being you know sent home 
just right before we met, I was uh, looking at like more current statistics and they're awful. Like all the way through from, from where it's spreading to how, uh, how we're treating it, uh, racism is, white supremacy is killing people because it does. And then we get the bonus racism of having Trump calling it the Chinese flu, mm -hmm. um, which I don't even want to, like I, maybe there's a way to describe it without saying that. We had a, a, a restaurant here. Did you see that, Don? Yeah, the announcement of why they should open and why they're going to open. They actually said they were going to open, like everybody Today, else being there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And their argument was that it, you're less likely to catch it in their wholesome all-American restaurant than if you're eating takeout on dishes from China. They actually like, said that, yes. Sort of mind-boggling. Yeah. To their credit, they took their entire Facebook page down, so it's all gone. You remember, there are two places named the same thing, and so yes. that other, the other, and I think they're related somehow. And the other one, they went ahead and and actually uh, they've opened up their doors to to actually deliver now. Things opening back up is um, opening back up at whose expense, you know? And that's kind of what I hear you mentioning, Don, is it's at the expense of people who literally cannot afford to stay home. But the thing is, we separate manual labor, service labor jobs from the same sort of manual labor and service that's happening at schools, that's happening at, you know, after school programs, that's happening at little, you know, dance academies. Um, and I agree with you that we really are showing that we see one another as expendable. One of my friends was mentioning about how Texas was going to open up and that the museums were going to be opening up for tours. But oddly enough, the governor's mansion wasn't going to be open for public tours. Hmm. And when you have the power to make that kind of a decision, then you see how it's being exercised these days. And hopefully communities can band together and stay home and find other ways to support one another so that we're not unnecessarily putting ourselves at risk. But I think we battle even in our own communities, you know, our own conspiracy theories about what the virus is and who it's intended for. And Tony Menace, it's a hell of an election year at this point because this is going to be one for the books. Yeah. Because I, uh, my biggest fear, big confession, confession, my biggest fear is that they're going to postpone like the national election. Yeah, no, they say they can't do that. They say that today. It's April, it's May now, basically. We, we, did we miss primaries? Like where are we at election wise? Like what else remains to happen? We need the national conventions, right? To, to pick our nominees. And that's in July, mm -hmm. isn't it? They've, they've been moving them to like August and it's just so hard to imagine anything right now. Like I can't imagine. You know what was hard to imagine in 2016 though, right? And there, here we are. <laughs> yeah. My, my youngest was asking if someone who looked sort of like me, but older, came over, you know, six months ago and said, this is what's about to happen. What would I think? Would I believe them? Like me from the future, basically. And uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I would. I probably would say, well... Yeah, sure, there may be a pandemic, but we're not going to manage to stay inside because how could we figure that out as a society? So really, we've outperformed my cynical expectations so far. And I, that's been really interesting to watch, too, is how people have struggled with being told to stay home. Me, as a, an introvert of champion proportions. I'm happy. I'm like, this is great. I'm just having the best time. All this home organization. I get to rearrange my linen closet. Like I am just, I'm having a ball. This is wonderful for me. Um, but what we're also really running up against is the very real anxiety for people who need and are healthier when they have social interactions, who really need the mundane routine of a day to help them so laying bare is the depths of our inabilities to care for each other. The impact on our homeless populations in all of our cities 
who are in need, the higher incidences of abuse on children and on partners um, because of being forced to stay home in unsafe environments, the food insecurities that were generally or halfway met when kids were attending school and getting fed there. Like there were, there are a number of holes in our system that I think are being pointed out. And I wonder if we'll be able to look at them and choose to fill the holes for the betterment of our societies in general. Um, there was a picture from India about how the smog had essentially disappeared because people were not in the factories every day. And I think it had been maybe like right at the 30 day mark or less than, but just the effect that we're having on our world and the effect that we're having on each other and our relationships. This is, it's been really interesting to watch from that perspective too. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm going to double back because it's really important to center a white woman's experience here. I have felt missing something. I'm so glad you pointed it out because I just was like, what is missing? And I, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's a white woman. Yes, yes, please, Amy, proceed. <laughs> so I loved laughing about the Karen stuff and like really pretty much howling at the idea of women with stenciled hair, partly because stenciled, that, I, that just seems like so much work. For me, the pandemic is about not washing my hair. But I, I want to note like my own discomfort with this conversation on lots of different levels, but also that I think part of my delight in laughing at Karen and Becky and the genogram and all of that is that it's, it's my own effort to not be that. You and could so never I, be a Karen and you've never been a Becky, so. Well, I'm sure that I can from time to time. Like that, those, those, Karen lives in me too. Like that's just the reality of. Karen's uh, in all of us. <laughs> right. I'm just teasing. <laughs> but, but I just, I want to note that because I think it's like this stuff is, is messy and it's hard. And I think when you're trying to work through it, it's easy to use like a, a strategy of disconnection, like humor or crying and then stopping at that point. Like there are lots of different, techniques that we might use to avoid really experiencing who we are in this moment. Well, I think that's, I think that that's actually really powerful because, because now we've got a baseline. If <laughs> yeah. I know where I go, I know how to come back from it. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's, there's no success in saying I'm never going to be that person. I'm going to try really hard not to be. Yeah. But when it happens, I now can recognize it enough to know how to stop it before I do irreparable harm. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, my best hope is to see Karen when, when she comes out of my mouth. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just entitlement. Like, I think if all of us felt like we could have a Karen moment and be taken seriously, we would love being Karen because <laughs> it serves a purpose. Yeah. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like if we could access the privilege that comes along with being dubbed a Karen, I would love that. That would be great. Yeah. Get like my done. friends for like, yeah, like you can call you can call people a Karen, and I was like, oh my gosh, my white friend said that I could say Karen. This is amazing. Do you all feel like this all the time? Like when black people tell you, you can say the N word, like I can say Karen, and you're not bothered by it. I'm gonna tell all my white friends. I have a white friend that told me I could say Karen, that I could actually call you. <laughs> oh my gosh, Karen, because my white. Folks. And so then, no, listen. So then my friend was like, no, actually, you don't even have to do all that emotional labor. And I was like, y'all cannot stop yourselves from, from, from just taking shit away, can you? Because here I was about to exercise my little piece of white privilege heaven, and you came <laughs> and took it away having to do all this emotional labor. Like, oh my gosh, it was the worst thing. But I, for a moment, I was like, this is fascinating. This is what it's like being on the other side given access and permission to do this thing that should gain me power, that should gain me effectiveness, that should, you know, get things done, right? Where I can say, I want to see your manager and someone listens, I see the manager and they take me seriously. Like there's function within the mess, right? Within the mess of, of the Karen word, there's a function that actually a lot of us, I think would love to have. But what this basically helps us do is deflect from the pain of powerlessness. Hmm. I don't have the same power that an angry white woman does. Mm -hmm. And I may never get that power. 
And so because I may never get that power, the most I can do is give it a name and throw it at the folks who do have that power. Yeah. I just want to reach out to all our listeners whose true name is Karen <laughs> right now and just say, you know, you can be that Karen, you know, and, and it's okay to be that Karen, not, not this Karen, but be Karen Smith, be, be the Karen that you are, that we're not talking about you unless you're being the other Karen. Correct. Correct. I, I co-sign that message. You know, it, um, one of the things that kind of has been standing out to me too in like just these difficult conversations and these difficult processes is like, how do we just better practice and like focus on what connection means and what it looks like? How do we focus on connection in the midst of talking about Karens? Yeah. I actually made, I made this little ebook and I did like a five day connection practice talking about like the five, the five good things mm-hmm. in an ebook that I feel like I have to now go back through it and talk about ways that I can practice connection even through a messy situation like this. It's a muscle we have to exercise, right? Mm-hmm. My, my couch yeah. to anti-racism, my couch to anti-oppression, like it's practicing connection by noticing what I would need in order to feel zest in this conversation. What do I need in order to feel clarity, empowerment, sense of worth, et cetera. So now I have to go get my little, my little ebook and start working on it. But maybe you guys can go get, I'll send you all a copy of the ebook and then we can maybe like practice connection together. You tell me how it looks. Yeah, absolutely. And now I'm excited. Can can we make a couch to anti-oppression? I would be open to that. That'd be sort of fun, wouldn't it? That would be cool. (laughs) That kind of would be cool. I'll have to look at this this book you've recommended and see how I feel about it. And then we can get a bunch of friends to do my ebook together. That would be yeah. exciting. But yeah, let's, let's, maybe we could do that. A couch to anti-racism or a couch to anti-oppression, right? Cause it's not just yeah. race. It'll be gender and sexuality and ability and everything. So. Oh, wow. This was fun. All Thank right. you for, for letting me hang out with you smart ladies. Oh, <laughs> thanks for fun. inviting me in y'all. Thanks this for was fun. This with Sean. Yeah. Yes. Happy to do so. This episode of My Racist Friend is a production of the Bloomington Center for Connection, an organization using relational cultural theory to promote social change through connection. This conversation between Dr. LaShawn Williams, Don Griffin Jr., and Amy McKee's LCSW took place at separate locations in Utah and Indiana on Thursday, April 30th, 2020, and was edited for this podcast by Kevin McKees. Theme music lovingly sampled from Your Racist Friend by They Might Be Giants. Follow the Bloomington Center for Connection on Facebook and other social media platforms. Okay, mommy has to talk professional stuff now.